All right, this morning we're continuing in Esther, Esther 8, 1 and 2. The Word of God says, On that day King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he, what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for... Um, after saving us, giving us your word. Uh, thank you for its importance in our lives. Thank you that we can come together this morning and pour over it. I pray that we would have wisdom and open hearts and minds, that it would continue to set our uh, minds towards you in the Advent season and uh, coming to celebrate the birth of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, next week, we will have service, of course. We will have Lord's Day as an ordinary means that God has provided one day in seven. There will be no cancellation uh, for Christmas, so please uh, plan to join and be a part of worship on Lord's Day. Uh, Pastor Dan will be preaching a Christmas sermon uh, in, in theme of the day to be observed. I, this morning, I want to continue our time in Esther and I noted for you a couple of weeks ago as we were looking at the passage and its development and the various characters and one of the uh, important pieces to get down and understand about the story and what's taking place throughout chapter 7 at the end of 7 as we transition throughout chapter 8 is the degeneracy of Ahasuerus. Again, I noted to the, you, uh, this to you a couple of weeks ago. But again, you recall the, the, how we see his degeneracy is immediately when Esther is asking for her life. And you saw that in chapter 7. Uh, she is referring to the edict that went out by Haman for the destruction and annihilation of the Jewish people. And she speaks in quotes from it. I just cite for you again, just quickly, verse 4. When she finally tells Ahasuerus what it is that she's wanting, she identifies with the covenant people of God, and she cites in verse 4 the edict that Haman had put forward about the destruction of the Jewish people. We have been sold, my people, to be, and here it is, destroyed, killed, and annihilated. So she quotes from the original edict as she speaks to Hashuerus, who has been asking her for two days, what is it that you want? Anything, and I'll give it to you. When she cites from the very edict uh, that has been published throughout all 20, 127 provinces and the city capital of Susa, uh, he still can't quite understand what she's referring to. And again, I just make mention of how everything from start to finish throughout the course of the book in Ahasuerus' life is about Ahasuerus. Um, and his degeneracy is, is uh, evident in multiple places throughout the course of the text. But again, the highlight would be that you can oversee the destruction of an entire minority population in your kingdom and you forget. Um, I, I, I note for you, we see it again in verse 10, uh, as we make our transition towards the text that we're looking at in chapter 8 this morning. Notice with me verse 10 just briefly, and the king said, hang him on that. And you recall, it's Haman, he's, he's being impaled on the gallows. Uh, so it'll be a public demonstration of someone who dared to act on their own, as far as Hashuera sees it, 
right underneath his own nose, embarrassed him and undermined his authority, and Haman uh, will be hung and is impaled upon the gallows publicly. That's the response. And then uh, the next portion of verse 10, so they hanged him on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Notice again Ahasuerus, the comment the writer makes, then the wrath of the king abated. You see, the trials and tribulation of the Jewish people remain in place. But as far as Ahasuerus is concerned, the person who publicly embarrassed him has been dealt with. And so now he simply, he's good now. He can move on. His temperature has come down. He was upset for a moment. He witnessed Haman's activities. He heard Haman's speech through Esther. And then he hung him on the gallows. He's publicly on display as someone not to mess with me. And now he, I'm good. Things are fine. Once again, there's order. Again, this points to the fact that what really fueled Ahasuerus' rage at the very beginning was the fact that Haman had exposed him as weak and inept. You think, well, surely it would be about Esther expressing herself to be Jewish and, and therefore under the edict herself so as to be killed therein shortly after this event or this dining episode or the banquet that we're sharing here. And not so much. The text seems to indicate mostly that he is upset with Haman exposing him as a weak and inept leader. This is the meaning behind the response of verse 5. Again, you notice, after he hears of what is possible uh, or is, uh, possibly going to happen to Esther, his wife, he simply responds, who is he? Who is this person? Where is he? Who has what? Dared to do this. And, and um, Esther seems to understand uh, where his anger is placed. And her response betrays this by, she, she, she says back in reply to Ahasuerus, a foe and an enemy. Right, right, just as Ahasuerus sees it. Someone is here, my foe and my enemy. Who dared to embarrass me and to act on his own? Well, Esther then uh, smartly points out, well, it's this wicked Haman right here who's sitting at the table with us. And of course, the scene escalates now that Haman knows, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in big trouble. He, at the same time, finds out that Esther, you know, you cannot believe that Esther is Jewish. And she is. So he realizes, "I'm I'm in enormous trouble here. And he says it's the same thing with Ahasuerus. He's mad at me um, uh, uh, for what my part is to play in this. Of course, they were just friends a chapter ago, a very short period of time ago. They were sitting down and drinking and enjoying themselves while the city of Susa was moved into chaos, the, the writer tells us. But now Haman realizes, I'm in huge trouble. We're no longer friends. And then Haman, in a moment of desperation, we looked at last week, when the king, in his rage, gets up and removes himself from the room. He storms out, just like you would expect. 
He storms out of the room, thinking over, what can I do in response to what Haman has done to me? I'm totally embarrassed. And he's filled with rage. The text tells us such uh, in verse 7. He was filled with wrath. Haman stays behind to beg for his life, and then, of course, he attempts to physically assault the queen mere feet away from Ahasuerus. This is the final straw uh, that we would say broke the camel's back, so to speak. The act of falling upon the queen's couch. I noted for you last week, as we kind of do uh, uh, a breakdown of the Hebrew translation there and the root words, it indicates uh, uh, consistently in the Old Testament text a, a physical subduing or an assault, essentially. Thus, the ESV translation, if you're using that this morning, uh, uh, translates it as, uh, as an assault. In the response of Hashuerus, will he even assault the queen right here in my own presence, that is, right here in my own house? Um, again, Haman's uh, publicly now then been executed by the time you get to verse 10 because he's embarrassed Ahasuerus. He sought to lay hand on his own wife right here in his own house. Again, you can read the tone and tenor of the text. It's all about Ahasuerus. Otherwise insecure, filled with wrath and rage. So he's good now, right? Haman's been dealt with, let's let the temperatures cool. But recall the text, the point of the text, the Jews are not just simply all right now. The death of Haman did not stop the threat to the Jewish people. One author mentions it this way by saying, quote, Haman is gone. But the evil he set in motion lives on in the decree of death against the Jewish people. So as far as Ahasuerus is concerned, life is fine. We can just all go back to the way that we were living a few moments ago now that we dealt with Haman, but the Jewish people not so. So the question that then continues for the reader as we follow into the next scene in chapter 8 is simply this. Does the king care about the demise of the Jewish people at all? I'll simply recap, again, moreover the gallows that Haman had prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. King said, well, that's good. Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. But again, does he care about what still awaits the Jewish people? It's the demise of an entire minority group to which Esther belongs. Does he care? So similarly to the question, does Ahasuerus care about the Jews at all? Which the answer to that is no. But related, does he care about Esther? So the reader is still pondering these thoughts as they know that the death has been brought to the villain Haman, but there's still this edict in place, which we've been told by the writer cannot be revoked. It's hard to read these stories afresh, right, for the first time because we've read them a couple of times or we've seen them or we've heard them preached and so on and so forth. But we need our, to, to do our best to go back to the place of the original audience without knowing the ending. It's really hard, but recall, they don't know the end yet. Now, what, how did this happen? How did deliverance come? 
What occurred in these events? Because we understand the nature of Persian law. Now we know that Haman is gone. But the king seems fine with that. What about the major severe drama and problem and tragedy facing not just the Jewish people, of course, but his own wife? Will he act? How did it occur? Notice then the transition between the two scenes is verse 1 and 2. We have a bridge that serves us from the wrath of the king being abated into Esther speaking yet again. We have this little notation and then segue into the next scene. Notice verse 1. On that same day, right? On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman. And then and you have this little tagline as it moves forward, and we, we covered it months ago now by considering when Haman was introduced, who Haman was and how he functions throughout the course of the story. But you'll find this tagline following him throughout now, the enemy of the Jews. So, so Esther was given the house of Haman. Well, who is Haman? Don't ever forget, he was the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told him, that is the king, what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman at this point, who stands uh, or who was impaled on the gallows publicly. Uh, the king had removed the, the signet ring, and he gave it in this moment to Mordecai. And Esther then set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now, before we consider these are just historical transfers of power... As the people of God, we must consider the truly important observation that we must make here in this text. The truly significant and important observation for us to make about this entire text right here is God's total, utter triumph over his enemies. Again, you you have a historical occurrence here and the transfer of power, and all that Haman had. And you're told who Haman is as you read and understand the dynamics of the story. He is the enemy of the Jews. This is the story of redemptive history, beloved. We just read it, in fact, in the bulletin just a few moments ago in our Old Testament lesson together. It's as old as the story in the garden when Adam and Eve fell into sin. There was a promise that one would come. It would be an offspring of the woman. But there would be an enmity that long existed between the offspring of the woman and the offspring uh, of, the, uh, of the serpent. And these two offsprings would strive and struggle against one another. And yet God promised to totally triumph over the serpent and the woman's seed to be delivered. This is what we have in verse 1 and 2, but yet one more redemptive historical occurrence of this being a reality. God totally triumphing over his enemies. To be an enemy of the Jews, that is the church and the people of God of the Old Covenant, is to be an enemy of God. One author mentions it this way, Haman is not us as we consider the dynamics of the story. Haman is our enemy. He embodies in a most striking way that inveterate hate that the world has always had and always will have for God's people. And his downfall is not our achievement, but God's. 
It is a gift to be marveled at and rejoiced in. You see, again, this is the story of redemptive history, beloved, and it continues to this day until the Lord Jesus does return. Now, we might, again, live in a different space and time and geography and movement of history. And so the strategies of the serpent and his offspring will be varied. They move, they shift, they change. But the outcome, beloved, remains fixed. The outcome remains certain. It will never be the cruel. It will never be the proud, the wicked, and the unjust who prevail, but only God and the sheep of his pasture. This is what we're to learn principally in verses 1 and 2. But notice again a little comment on the complete reversal of fortunes in verse 2. You notice the king took off the signet ring and he gave it to, that he took from Haman and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther then set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Haman's judgment, that is, in the end, after having been impaled upon the gallows, the judgment continues downstream for all of his family. His judgment here in the presence of Hashuerus includes the transfer of his power, his prestige, his position, and even his property from himself and his lineage over to Mordecai, who was his, should we say, mortal enemy. Historically, that backs up this text as we consider outside of this text the historical record of Persian law. The property of a traitor was to be confiscated by the state. Again, this points to the idea that Ahasuerus is mainly upset that he's been betrayed and made to look weak and inept. That's how we could consider from the text that Haman is a traitor after all. Because you remember, he truly just appealed to the king and the king signed off on the entire edict. They were one. He gave him money to finance the edict. He promised to, Haman promised to give money back in the accomplishment of the edict. And yet here, he is being treated as a traitor. So much for zeal or love for his wife. But the property of a traitor is to be confiscated by the state. It principally seems within the text to be of given to Esther. I think the, the best observation we could make of why the, the, the uh, money, why the opportunities, why the housing under household is given over to Esther is because she's probably just highest on, obviously, the wrong of who was embarrassed or was at risk within the edict itself that Haman had drafted. So uh, it seems that all of the house of, of Haman is transferred to Esther. And then as you see within the text... After she explains who Mordecai is to her. Remember, uh, Mordecai has been honored by the king just a short while ago. And, and so the king is now utterly unfamiliar with Mordecai. As he spoke to Haman, what should a man do that he wishes to honor another man within the kingdom? What should the king do for such a man? And then it's told, well, you ought to give him the robes. You ought to take him through the town. You ought to praise his name. Make the people bow. Throw a parade, basically, for the man. And honor him as... Uh, as uh, a star for the kingdom. 
So Ahasuerus is not altogether unknown, uh, uh, unaware of Mordecai. But he still didn't know the significance of Mordecai's relationship to Esther. Here Esther makes it known, which again, you look back on the text and realize Mordecai was telling her for a long time, don't tell anyone. But here we've seen a handful of times the true devotion and love that Esther has for Mordecai, her uncle. She really cares for him. Sincerely cares for Mordecai. She had an opportunity, you recall, at the assassination attempt to tell the story of what Mordecai had told her and take full credit for it, but she sought not. She gave credit to Mordecai. She told it to the king in the name of Mordecai. Now she expresses to the king in full disclosure of who Mordecai is to her. The man that you've honored is my uncle. Uh, he raised me. Ahasuerus then allows the transfer of the property from Esther over to Mordecai, and he takes over his enemy's household. I will note for you, just in the context of the Old Testament text, we speak of this often in a positive and in a negative way, as it's revealed across the Old Testament text. Uh, when you notice the word the house uh, in verse 1, you notice it yet again in verse 2, that Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman you realize it includes all of his property, all of his holdings, all of his servants, and even his family. The house of Mordecai exhaustively, uh, or, or Haman exhaustively went and transferred to Mordecai. That would mean earlier in the text, as you recall, Zeresh, she yet again has proven true. That is the wife of Haman, I noted for you in verse 13 of chapter 6, Zeresh said to him, that this is a response to Haman, if Mordecai before whom you've begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. That includes Zeresh herself. Now what Mordecai then does with the family and the assets and however he manages it is up to Mordecai. I just wish you to know, indeed, all the way down to a man. Mordecai has conquered. Moreover, theologically, God has conquered. Again, his downfall is not our achievement. But Haman's downfall is God's achievement. It is thereby a gift to be marveled at and rejoiced in. We'll see this at the very end of our text this morning. Yet, Again, if we join the text again in verses 3 through 8, you notice that the victory may still end in defeat. We have a historical segue in verses 1 and 2, and then when you get to 3 and you work 3 through 8, you realize really the, the needle has not moved very far in terms of deliverance for the entirety of the Jewish people. Now, what Ahasuerus would have made uh, of uh, Esther and what, he, what provision thereby through Esther he may have allowed for Mordecai is unknown to us. But for sure we do know that the Jewish people remain in the crosshairs of the edict. And it will be executed in nine months from these events right here. So the victory, while seemingly sweet, may be very, very shortly lived. Notice verse 3, Esther spoke again to the king. Now that there's been transfer 
She told him who Mordecai is to her. She spoke yet again to the king. She fell at his feet and she wept and she pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite. Again, you would insert Agagite historically for an Amalekite who is of the lineage of Agag, that is, and he is what? The enemy of the Jews. It will always be attached there as the writer progresses that we may never forget the enemy of the Jews and the plot that he has devised against him. Now, the king allows her then to speak forward. So again, at the end, of, uh, you'll notice the end of verse 4. She says, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, the, uh, the uh, son of Hamaditha. Again, a genealogical attachment, uh, attachment to the enemies of the Jews. Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman. Notice verse 6, for how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Nothing has shifted again for the Jewish people in the act of broader deliverance beyond Mordecai and Esther perhaps. Verse 7, then the king says in response to Queen Esther uh, and to Mordecai who has joined them, behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman. Did I not act? And, and, and again, he says, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hand on the Jews. Uh, again, behold, see what I've done. She asked him to immediately intercede. His response is, behold. In other words, notice what I've done. So Mordecai is present who has worked for the government for a season of time now. He knows how operations work. The king then turns in verse 8, you notice, and, and then he kind of just offers this forward. But you may write, okay? You may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king. Seal it with the king's signet ring, of which Mordecai now possesses. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. You see, we're right back where we were in terms of the rule of law in Persian court. Once an edict is set in motion, an edict of the king cannot be revoked. It simply cannot. Uh, it, it's, it, it, no matter how much the reader wants it to go away, it simply cannot. It is a thing fixed. So it appears that Esther would say, well, just revoke it, right? Of, of which she, she asks, uh, uses the term in verse 5, let the order be, that was written be revoked. The writer keys us in to remember through the words of the king. The king's signet ring seals and it cannot be revoked. So we're right back where we began. Thus, the only solution seems to be what the king offers up to Mordecai to do. And that is, Mordecai is enabled or allowed to write a competing edict. That is, uh, the king says, okay, fine. I, I, I've, I've taken care of Haman, uh, who, who laid hand, sought to lay hands on you, who betrayed me and made me look uh, inept uh, and, and weak. We've dealt with him. In fact, I've given his entire household over. Okay, fine. I'll, I'll tell you what. You can write as you please regarding the Jews. In other words, write another edict equal in force. 
telling Mordecai functionally, you can write whatever you want. So what takes place in verse 9, the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was indeed written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews. So what is the overall impact of the competing edict? Remember, the original order remains. Now how, again, I, I can't express how that factors in Esther's life or Mordecai's life. My, my watch does that all the time. I don't know why. It thinks I'm talking to it, but I'm not. I'm talking to you. Um, what, uh, what occurs for Mordecai and, uh, uh, and uh, Esther in that, we don't know. But what we do know is that the, the war is going to break and descend upon the Jewish people in a matter of months. So Mordecai writes a competing edict. And the effect of it for the kingdom of Persia is essentially Mordecai legalizes a civil war. Again, you can't stop the war that is descending. Citizens have been told in the month of Adar, on the particular day, they are to take up arms against the Jewish people. That remains in force. How long would it take for the story to develop and to get out to all the peoples and all their languages, all that had transpired with Haman? Probably a season of time. Uh, do we have time? I don't know. At some point, it's moot because we can't undo the edict that's in play. Uh, there will be a war. There will be a physical uh, assault upon God's people. Mordecai is allowed to write a competing act that allows them to defend themselves against their attackers. As I said to you, if you consider that across all 127 provinces, that means that a civil war has now been legalized by the pen of Mordecai. I draw your attention to verse 11 and 13. You notice this is what the edict said, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather. And here is a key word as we consider it in a few weeks from now as we speak about the justness of the response of the Jews to their enemies. I want you to note this term very carefully, saying uh, that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives. We're going to return to that in a few weeks. To destroy, to kill, and to annihilate. Again, the same words of the original edict as Mordecai pens it to speak of a Jewish response. They can do so against any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to ponder their uh, plunder their goods. And on the day throughout all the province of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. You see, the trial and tribulation and terror of the Jewish people has been going on for two months now. If you look up in verse 9, you'll see that where uh, Mordecai begins to write, and they give you the notation of the time that's lapsed. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month. Again, this is only two months uh, 
past the original edict of time. So under two months' time, the Jews have been living under the shadow of annihilation. Um, you can think of how hard it is to go a day without knowing what's about to transpire or happen and something you're waiting to occur. Uh, the anxiety and the pitch of the temperature at the time, waiting for your little ones and your families together as you live out your days. It's been two months. Each and every day you are reminded that within the score of ten more months, your family will be destroyed. But by way of the edict, they are now given nine months to prepare for war. No longer do they need to be sitting ducks. That is, I'm sure there would be some defense offered. Uh, you know, self-preservation would kick in to protect yourself and those who you care about. So it's not like they would have just walked off to the slaughter uh, in the month of Adar when the edict was full-blown. There would have been at least this much defense hands and fingernails, you know, there, there would have been at least a resistance, but they were not going to be legalized to gather and to form themselves and arm themselves for combat. And now they are legally allowed to, so indeed they will. They will prepare for war against those who have planned to descend upon them and their families. The text ends and says, indeed it was so, is you notice at the end of verse 14. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service. They rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. And the text concludes this way, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. You notice the use of decree consistently throughout the text to highlight uh, the, portion, the, the fact that it is inviolable. You cannot manipulate it. You cannot change it. You cannot even by way of being the uncle of the queen to be considered outside of it. The edict is a thing fixed. And now there is a competing edict, a thing fixed, where civil war will be had. The final scene I want to close our time with here now as I move toward my conclusion with you in our time this morning. But the final scene closes with a picture that is one truly and only realized in its fullness, I hope you come to appreciate through the gospel of Jesus Christ. If I could still look at a text as it concludes with you just for a brief moment, Consider the foreshadowing event here through a historical reality as God works in his providence to foreshadow and point each of us, each and every text, each and every movement in redemptive history toward its goal. That is the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll note for you here as we wind down the text, is this foreshadowing event within the text that points us and propels us forward to its truest and ultimate fulfillment that you can receive truly only through the empty vessel of faith. Notice the exchange of garments for Mordecai. And notice also in the exchange of the garments by way of the king, 
is by pure and utter gift. I noted for you before that the achievement over Haman is not our achievement, but God's. A gift, a thing to be received, a thing to be rejoiced over. The historical picture here with Mordecai in conclusion can truly only be fully realized in the provision of blood-washed linens and robes are provided through faith that rest upon Christ alone. Full gift, not of our own achievement, but something to be rested upon, received, something to be rejoiced in. Mordecai, indeed, is a historical typological picture. Notice, if you will, with me in verse 15. Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Do you remember Mordecai's clothing at the beginning of our time of learning Mordecai and what was transpiring in behalf of the seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman? Mordecai was tearing his clothes, wearing sackcloth and ash. He was momentarily exalted in the shadow of the king as a man who delivered the king. And now he is a man who by pure gift is dressed in purple linens and robes of white. He is exchanged by pure gift, his brokenness, and his torn clothes of garments of sorrow and shame and pity and is clothed by the king through pure gift and linens of great gold crown and robe of fine linen and purple and the city of Susa rejoices. The people of God in verse 16 had light and gladness and joy and honor and in every province and in every city wherever the king's command and his edict reached there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. You see, Mordecai's garments of sackcloth and ash have been replaced with fine linens and royal robes. The days of sadness for the people of God have been replaced with days of gladness and great joy. Beloved, this is a story, not of our own achievements and our own worthiness, but is a story of God's faithfulness, a story of his grace, a working of his promise, and a display of his providence. Such a striking reversal of fortunes, such a great exchange of brokenness for restoration by pure gift foreshadows for us the love of God through his son, Jesus Christ. Only through Christ, as we rest upon him, truly through the empty vessel of faith, bringing nothing of our own work or want, but to receive him in all of his benevolence and grace. He, beloved, is the answer to our sin and our misery. It is he to whom we fly to receive of his grace and his nourishment, forgiveness, cleansing, and restoration. 
May we bring him our brokenness, our worries, our fears, and our concerns, that in his presence we might experience his grace and his nourishment. We might bring our nakedness to his clothing and experience his triumph as pure gift. Let us pray. Our Father, we celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word that you've bestowed upon your people to be read, to be received, to be meditated upon, and to be trusted. We praise you that it is a light and a lamp unto our path. We praise you that it highlights the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of its beauty and glory. We praise you for your benevolence, your provision of free gift that bestows upon us all of the Son's accomplishments whereby we rejoice in great gladness. We go out with song, joy, having been clothed in the great exchange of our brokenness, our sackcloth and our ash, and the triumph of your grace to experience your royalty, your robes, your righteousness, your peace, your joy, your goodness. I pray for any here who is struggling in the faith, that they would repent, that you'd give the grace of repentance to them, that they would see their sin for what it is, and they would see Christ as a solution to sin and misery, the provision of kindness and grace and mercy, the Son of God, that he might forgive, renew, and empower. Strengthen the saints through your preaching of your word and the giving of your t- our time to you. Strengthen us, our God, by these ordinary means to walk by faith each and every day, trusting in your providence and your presence, relying upon your Son, for all that he is in his provisions to us. In his name we pray, amen.